I imagine the six steps of the biblical sequence, the major events of the Exodus story running parallel to Egyptian history, starting with the arrival of Abraham's descendants in Egypt, their tremendous multiplication, their descent into slavery, the judgment of the nation that enslaved them, their deliverance and exodus out of Egypt, and finally in Canaan, their conquest of the promised land. I set out to see whether a pattern matching this sequence could be found. There's a whole host of reasons for being skeptical about the current Egyptian chronology, and some of them to do with Egypt itself, but a lot of them from outside Egypt, which a number of people are beginning, are beginning to look at. Other good scholars maintain that you don't need to change Egypt's timeline in order to see evidence for the Exodus. James Hoffmeyer believes textual clues in the Bible point to the Exodus happening at the 1250 B.C. Ramesses Day. Bryant Wood and Charles Ayling believe the Exodus occurred around 1450 B.C. using the conventional dates for Egypt and Canaan. They believe a case can be made for Israelites living in Egypt prior to that time and later Israel appearing as a nation in Canaan. So an exodus of some kind must have taken place. But the only place that I saw a pattern matching all the steps was in the Middle Kingdom, not the New Kingdom. And if that's not a coincidence, it would require some kind of major change. Either the exodus happened long before 1450, or the dates for Egypt's timeline are off. Researchers like Roland Bimson believe the main problem lies in these lesser-known dark periods of Egypt's past. They think scholars have miscalculated their links, causing distortions in the dates for everything before them. The biggest suspect is this very long third dark period, which new information suggests has been overinflated by centuries. If it were reduced, the history of Egypt would need to move forward in time. For many years, I was intimidated by the giant of Egypt's dating. But what made me take a second look was when I learned that it's been necessary to insert gaps into the histories of all the surrounding civilizations in order to match the dating of Egypt's third dark period. Yet the archaeology of these cultures does not seem to support such gaps. Something was wrong. What might history look like if the dark periods were adjusted the way that some scholars believe the evidence demands. What's not changing is the Bible timeline, because that's not affected by it. If you're changing the Egyptian timeline, you're moving it against the Bible timeline. So all of a sudden, things that were not in the right time period between the two are suddenly lining up in a different way. And that's the exciting bit, because that's when we suddenly start to find evidence for the biblical story. It's startling to think how significant this could be. Because chronology, the dates assigned to these events, is the thing being used to convince the world that the Bible is just a fairy tale. But look at the pattern. Evidence matching Joseph and the early Israelites' arrival in Egypt. Their tremendous multiplication. Their descent into slavery. The judgment and collapse of Egypt. The deliverance and exodus of the Semitic population. And finally in Canaan, evidence matching 
the conquest of the promised land. I know there's a lot of disagreement over the dating, but what strikes me is that if you put all the dates to the side for a moment, what emerges from the archaeology is this pattern that matches the Bible every step of the way. Well, today we're beginning a brand new series on Exodus. And in case you're not aware, there's a lot of archaeological challenge that there is no evidence that an Exodus occurred that is often a, a skeptical attack on the Bible. And there is a great movie out. Uh, the movie is called The Patterns of Exodus. And it's actually a movie that came out in the theaters last year. That was a clip from it. Uh, you can actually watch it on uh, Netflix if you have it. It's a two-hour documentary that shows all of the evidence in the in the archaeological finds for all these major events the Bible describes. However, it's all dated about 200 years before Ramesses. So many people don't see that that's connected at all to the Exodus. So as that video showed, there's a real scholarly debate on when the Exodus occurred. But when you get the timeline set, it all syncs up. And we're going to dig into that today in our brand new series called Catching Tears. The reason we're calling it Catching Tears is because it's about how God meets us in our despair. We're going to get to the burning bush. Something pretty amazing happens at the burning bush. God appears to Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to tell the people, number one, I have heard their prayers. Number two, I have seen their tears. God's going to meet Moses and his people in their despair. And I think many times we find ourselves feeling the same things that the Israelites feel at the beginning of Exodus. One, we begin to feel like, is God's promises ever going to come true? They've been in bondage for 400 years now. Two, they're facing incredible fear and unknown with a a pharaoh that's killing off the uh, two-year-old and younger children. They've been praying for a long time. Not weeks, not months, but centuries. And they're wondering, maybe God's abandoned us. Maybe God doesn't get involved anymore. Maybe God wound up the universe. Maybe Abraham and Jacob and all those promises were just wishful thinking. And God is going to show up and meet them in their fear, meet them in their challenge and say, I am with you and I want to help exit you out of the situation to teach you how to worship me and how to know me. I think as you look at your life, I know as I look at mine, often that there's sort of the last time I remember God working the last time I felt close to him, the last time I felt connected to him, the last time there was a great spiritual victory in my life, that was last time. And now I'm in this sort of stuck moment, and I'm waiting for next time he's going to show up, next time he's going to reveal himself, next time there's going to be healing, next time he's going to give me his strength. But between the last time and the next time is the meantime. And the meantime is where God wants to meet us. Now, see, I want to meet God in last time. Oh, let's live in the past. Oh, it was so good back when God and I were feeling so close. Or I want to meet God in the next time. Please, God, let's get next time coming sooner. But God almost always meets us in, in Egypt. He meets us in the meantime and says, I want to do some things with you during this meantime to prepare you for what I'm going to do next. I had a friend when I first got into ministry. His name was Rich. Every time I talked to Rich, he'd say, Chad, I got to tell you something. He always said the same thing. The meantime can be a very mean time. When that's the truth, when you're waiting for God to work, God to show up, help your marriage, help your health, help the prodigal son, it's a very mean time. Yet God wants to meet us in the midst of that meantime. I met one of the couples that 
live in our neighborhood just up the hill last week and they were or last year actually and they were sharing with me the struggles they were having just living in the fishbowl the pressures of just feeling like Man, I guess life is supposed to be like this pain difficulty relationship conflict going on so we keep waiting for that next time but we're stuck in the middle right here and as we prayed and talked together they began to find that God wanted to meet them in the midst of their difficulty in the midst of their challenge and he did. I talked to another woman, I think it was in December, we were at an uh, outing together, and she said that she began a process of trying to find God in the midst of the meantime by writing a journal of all the things she was thankful for. And it started off as, a, I was going to do it for a week, then she did it for a month. And during that month, she was able to start seeing God at work, being thankful for things he was doing, even during the difficulty. So then, she continued that for a whole year. And she began to really sensitize her heart to where God was working even in the midst of the mean times. After a year, she felt God was prompting her to look at a mean time in her past she'd never dealt with. Would she forgive a drunk driver who had killed a family member? She said, you know, a year ago I couldn't have thought about it, let alone addressed it and found freedom from it. But because God had sensitized my heart by me drawing close through the journaling and, and, and thankful journal... I was able to finally find freedom to be exited out of some bitterness I'd carried for many, many years. So my hope is you and I can find that God can meet us in our meantime. We're going to look at three aspects of this. The first one is his story. 30,000 foot. What's God doing in general in life? And that pattern then is the pattern now. His story. Then we're going to look at history. Specifically, where the Exodus occurred and the different Egyptian pharaohs related to that and some amazing aspects of how God might have done it. And then my story, how do we apply these lessons to our life? My hope is that we're going to find faith and confidence in God in the midst of the mean times we have as well. To begin with his story. His story teaches us that we are living in a mean time. The book of Exodus begins with these words. Now these are the names. Now before the Latin Vulgate or the English translation, way back in the Hebrew time, they didn't call this Exodus. They would say, turn in your scrolls to... Now, these are the names. That's what they called the book. It was the first line. Now, these are the names was the book. And just like Genesis has an incredible moment of God creating the world, and it was good, it was good, it was good, then there's the fall with Adam and Eve. Exodus has the same thing. Things are good, 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 and then there's the fall again. God says, there's good news. All those promises he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're coming true right here. These are the names of children of Israel. Who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob. Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah. God's put the whole family back together. Issachar and Zebulun and Benjamin and Dan. Nephali and Gad and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 people. And remember, Joseph was already in Egypt, he says. God's put the family back together. This is good news. Joseph passes away, but all his brothers in that generation were gone. But the children of Israel are experiencing the bounty of God. Look at how many times he uses the word and. Joseph died, all his brothers in that generation. But now he mentions the children of Israel were fruitful. They're increasing abundantly. Well, God's doing it. They're multiplying. And they grew exceedingly mighty. There are mighty warriors. It's a mighty army God's going to refer to them when he gets to plague number seven. And the land was filled with them. So we just see good news all over the place. And now what's going to happen is there's going to be a tragic fall. 
And the whole rest of Exodus is going to be how God works to get back to fulfilling the good news he'd promised to them. But as you, the, the readers of this book, which were the Israelites coming, already been exited, they're reading, wow, God was doing it. God was doing it. God was fulfilling his promises to all of our ancestors. But then the fall. Now, therefore, arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And isn't that how life works? You save the known world. 14 years, 7 years of fat cows, 7 years of skinny cows. You save the known world. And everybody forgets about you. That's about how life works. People forget about what you did, how you helped, how you got involved. And the new Pharaoh doesn't even remember this story. And that Pharaoh says to the people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more, look at all these words again, more and mightier than we Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war. So we've got this idea of these sort of weak people, the Israelites there. But these are highly trained, strong shepherds, business people. They're strong, incredible warriors. Like I said, when we get to plague number seven, God will say to Pharaoh, I've come to get my army out of Egypt and bring them out to worship me. He refers to them as his army. These are incredibly mighty people that the Pharaoh is ter- terribly scared of. That we, They might even join our enemies and fight against us. So go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with burdens. And now the fall. Oh my goodness, there's taskmasters, there's burdens, there's afflictions. And they were told to build Pharaoh's supply cities. Pithom and Ramesses. And now the people are like, oh my goodness. What is God doing? What happened to the promise? What happened to the goodness? How's God going to work? Why is He doing this? And the whole rest of Exodus, and the Bible for that matter, is how God demonstrates He is supreme over all the Egyptian gods. How He can deliver even out of the most undeliverable circumstance. God shows up and says, no matter what meantime you're in, no matter how difficult it seems, no matter how unescapable it seems, I want you to know there's a next time coming. I will fulfill my promises. I will be faithful to what I told you. I will do it. Trust me for who I am. I will be your deliverer. I will be your supreme God. I can deliver on my promises. Trust me in the meantime. I'm going to meet you in the midst of Egypt. So that's his story. How God almost always works. There was good news, there's bad news. He meets us in the bad news and he walks us through a process that's often way too slow but to develop develop our faith. I keep thinking i got to develop different sermon topics because the last three months have been some of the most difficult three months of my life. The last three weeks have been horrific. Haven't been able to move because of back injuries and crowns cracking and everything in the house breaking and I'm like, God, i got to stop preaching about the meantime because you make me go through the meantime. So that was two months ago when I began working on this. I'm working on a brand new series in three months. It's called How to Be Very, Very Happy with the Best of Circumstances. So we'll see if God, uh, I'll you some reverse psychology on God. It's been very, very tough. And I am learning how to meet God in the meantime, not try and trick him into getting me to the next time. So that's his story, how God's working in general in Exodus chapter 1. But now we're going to take about ten minutes. You've got to stay with me. We're going to get into the history of this. Because as we mentioned in that opening video, 
There's some real challenges to whether or not the Exodus occurred at 1250 where Ramesses is or 1450. I'm going to try and give a case that the Exodus occurred back in 1450 where all the archaeological evidence is for the Exodus. And I'm going to try and show you why. Why is it at 1450 if the Bible here mentions Ramesses himself? Well, here's one reason. God worked in the meantime before. And so the Bible being a story, an analogy, a nice idea, it's so important we realize the Bible really happened. It's actual history. God worked in real circumstances, in real history. And if he did that then, he can work in real history in your life and mine now. It's not just wishful thinking. So most people put the Exodus right here. You see it on the screen. Sometime around 1250. Because that's when Ramesses was existing. But we also saw the Egyptian timelines are messed up. However, Solomon exists around a thousand. That's when his kingdom's in place. And in the fourth year of his reign, he tells us that from the time he built the temple at year four, back to the Exodus was 480 years. So the Bible tells us the Exodus occurred way back here. So one of the reasons I think the Exodus occurred earlier is because first Kings tells us that. And this perfectly lines up with the archaeological research that shows all the different pieces of the biblical story in Egyptian history. So that's the first reason. However, the obstacle comes up and says, well, then why do they mention Ramesses if Ramesses isn't for a couple hundred years later? Well, because the Bible's not written like the TV show 24, you know, minute by minute. The whole book was written after the Exodus. When the canon was put together, it was canonized by Ezra, and he's writing to people after the facts to tell them using names of places they would recognize. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, here, I'll give you an example of this on the next slide. It says, There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to them, Look, they're being mightier, and they had to build the supply cities of Pithom and Ramesses. So again, here's that modern reference, that area you know as Ramesses is where they were building. He used that same phrase back in Genesis. Now, Jacob lived long, 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 long before Ramesses, but the writer uses a modern term so they'll know the area he's talking about. Joseph situated his father and brothers and gave them a possession of the land in Egypt and the best of the land in the land of Ramesses. So he's currently using a modern term for an ancient place he lived. Because if you dig down under the area of Ramesses, you go back a couple centuries and you come to a place called Avaris. Here in Avaris, there's incredible Egyptian digs going on right now. And they are finding evidence of these people from Canaan, these shepherd kings who came to dwell here in this area, directly beneath the city that we know as Ramesses. So Ramesses made it famous, but the evidence is a couple hundred centuries down in the archaeological finds. So that's the reason I have it timed there. Now, if it is timed at 14 B.C., what was God doing during that meantime of history? And this is where it either gets very exciting or you're going to be very bored. I hope it'll be very exciting. What happened at 1450? Amos I is part of 400 years of bondage, subjugating these people. Then he's going to die. And Amunatep is going to become Pharaoh. And Amunatep, we have in the hieroglyphics evidence that he had subjugated what the hieroglyphics say are the shepherd kings. And this is way before Moses is born. We're still during that 400 years. In the hieroglyphics, there's several very interesting things that we can see here. In the hieroglyphics, it shows him coming against these different armies. 
of the shepherd kings. And the hieroglyphics call them the shepherd. Here's the crook and here is the crown. They were the shepherd kings, these warriors, these other people living in the land that he began to subjugate, just as the Bible describes. Well, he's going to pass away and he's going to be replaced by Amun is going to be replaced by another pharaoh. I'm going to call him T1 because I can't pronounce these Egyptian names well. Thutmose I ascends. Thutmose I, you'll see, has a knife in his hand because I think he is the pharaoh that times out who's trying to kill off all the two-year-old boys and younger. He orders the killing of the boys and he has a daughter. It says here, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. They were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with vigor. It's the meantime. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage. It's the meantime. In mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. And all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. And then the king of Egypt, that I think is Thutmose I, spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name one was Shifra and the other was Puah, and he said, when you do the duties of the midwife for those Hebrew women, see them on their birth stools. And if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. And we see, if you want to watch the movie Patterns of Evidence, we actually see in the record back during the time of, of Avaris that the amount of boys versus girls has gone dramatically down. And we found some mass graves there as well. But he has a daughter. T1 does, and her name is Hop Shepsut. I'll call her H for now. He has his daughter, and she is born. Now, we know this because it's the only one really in Egyptian history during that time that sort of become famous. The Bible refers to her as the daughter of Pharaoh. So H is the daughter of Pharaoh, and she's the daughter of the king of Egypt, who I think is Thutmose the first. You'll see how all these pieces come together. Many scholars believe that she is the very one who comes and picks Moses up out of the Nile when she's somewhere between 6 and 12 years old. And the reason she needed need a Hebrew midwife is because she's 6 to 12. It's almost like a toy to her. But here she is. She now adopts and names him Moses because she drew him out of the water. And now, through a whole thing we'll see next week, his real mom becomes his midwife because this little girl... H had adopted him into the Egyptian family. And here is God working in the meantime. He's now going to train Moses to be his deliverer in the best educational system, the best leadership training institute. He's going to understand economics and politics and power and strategy. God is giving him the best education in this meantime to prepare for his plan of the Exodus. But it continues. Moses grows up and so does H. T1 is still the pharaoh. Moses is being gleaned and developed into a, a commander there in the Egyptian army. When H marries another guy, his name probably originally was Bob or something. It wasn't Bob, but he takes on the name of Thutmose. Because it wasn't like taking on the name Pharaoh. He says, I am now Thutmose II. It wasn't a brother or sister. He just took on the name. So she marries T2. And then her husband, her dad dies. So now Thutmose II... T2 becomes the Pharaoh. Moses is grown up, and so now H has this adopted son, Moses, and a husband, T2. Now, T2 dies. 
But he and H don't have any boy kids. So for the first time in Egyptian history, Egypt has a female pharaoh. She becomes Queen H. The first female pharaoh in Egyptian history that we know of. And there's all kinds of evidence in the hieroglyphics to show this. In fact, what's interesting is that when you see hieroglyphics, the pharaohs always have a beard because that was a sign of royalty. So because of that, whenever you see Queen H, you see that she has a beard. Why does she have a beard? She's the first circus lady. She's the first bearded lady in the hieroglyphics. You see, even in the, the monument of her, she's got the beard. Because she was a pharaoh, and the pharaohs always had a beard. So I don't know that she really had a beard, but she had the sign of the beard because she was indeed the first pharaoh who was female. Well, the story continues because her husband had a harem. And one of the children he had out of the harem named himself, or took the name, T3, Thutmose III. And now Queen H has this issue. She's grooming Moses, her adopted son, and she has a resentful stepson who wants to reign. She begins to reign a little bit with T3, and then she dies. Some people think T3 killed her. Some people think she poisoned herself because of the lotion she was using. We don't know, but she dies. And now there's this tension between the adopted son and the stepson. So what happens is when she dies, he takes on and becomes the Pharaoh. And you better believe he has resented this adopted son, Moses. It's about that time, Moses is about 40 years old. He loses his temper, kills somebody, and he has to flee to Midian, to the far side of the desert. And it says he will stay there for 40 years until the current Pharaoh is dead. His timing works out really well. That By the time T3 dies... Moses is about 80. And now God has trained him in Egypt for 40 years. Now he takes him to the far side of the desert to train on desert work, on leadership in the desert, on farming, on on family life, and working with his father-in-law. And he marries, and he learns all about the wilderness. God trains his deliverer in Egypt for 40 years and in the desert for 40 years during what seemed like a very mean time of God not being around to accomplish his purposes. He dies, and a new pharaoh comes in place, Amenhotep. I believe he is the pharaoh that lines up with the early exodus. Moses returns to to Egypt, and now he's got a beard. See, many of us, we have Moses showing up to the burning bush, and he's like 20. He's 80 when the burning bush appears to him. Many of us at 80 think, I'm done. You know, whatever plans God had for me, Boy, I'm ready to retire. I'm ready to give up. I'm ready to just shut down. At 80, God begins the work that he had prepared him for for the first 40 years and the second 40 years so he could do his work in the last 40 years. That's a long, mean time. But many of us think, I guess God's done with me. We need to not retire, but to refire. We need to realize that God has a plan for us. That his best work is going to be done from 80 to 120 So this is Moses stepping into the story. And we see how God works in the midst of this. God says, I work by preparing you in mean times, in actual history, to get all the pieces in play to bring about my purposes. So his story, good news, bad news, God working it out. History, and I may be wrong. This is just 20 hours of Egyptian research put into 10 minutes for you. This is what I think God did with these characters, but it could have been different ones, but these really line up well to the biblical account. Now, what's our application for this? What's my story? 
I think there's several things we can learn from this. Several things we can apply from this. Number one, I think my response to this is that we should know certainly, with absolute certainty, that we're living in a broken world that's going to have mean times. Let me go back in time. Before Moses, before Joseph, before Jacob, all the way back to Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. This is where, I guess, Abraham became a Christian uh, in the sense of Old Testament. It says that he believed in God and God counted to him as righteousness. This is the, the very verse that Paul uses in Romans. And when he becomes a Christian or gets God's righteousness, it says that God, he says, God, how will I know for sure you're going to fulfill the promise to my family, a promise to this future land? How will I know? He says, God, I got a sign for you. Here's how you'll know certainly what I'm doing. How will I know I'm going to inherit it? So God, way back before Moses says, know certainly that your descendants are going to be strangers in a land that's not theirs. And you're going to have to serve those strangers and they will afflict you for 400 years. That's the sign? I mean, if you're Moses, I mean, if you're Abraham, you're like, really? God, how can I know for sure you're with me? How can I know for sure you're going to give me these promises? How can I know for sure you're going to do it? I got a guarantee. You're going to have your, your, your descendants are going to be in bondage for 400 years. And you'll know I'm with you. You see, a good father and a good God wants to tell us this life, we can know certainly it's a mean time. It's a very broken world. We need to prepare ourselves that this life is not Disneyland. It's not a day on the beach. My daughter was heading off to college. She had a very challenging uh, first semester just because of the job she's in. And one of the things I, I shared with her was a verse to memorize in First Peter that says, Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Because every time I encounter mean times, I get angry at God, I get disappointed in God, and I'm surprised that the fiery trials come upon me. And God tells us, he told Abraham, don't be surprised when you have 400 years of bondage. I'm working out my plan. Don't be surprised, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. I'm going to work in the midst of the meantime with you. We can know certainly that we're living in a broken world. That's the response to the exodus. We need our own exodus. We need to meet God in our meantimes as well. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's helpful. If I told you that after church today, we're going to meet back here at 5 o'clock and we're all going to put out all of this on an airplane and we're going to head out to beautiful sunshine and sandy beaches. And I want you to meet us here at 5 and we're going to fly off together for a week. So you go home and you got to pack. What are you going to pack? You get your swimsuit, you get your towel, you show up, we're all here, and you notice that I'm wearing camouflage. And I'm looking at you like, what are you doing in your swimming suit? He said we're going to warm, sandy area. Yeah, that's what I said. And you say, well, I thought you were talking about Miami. So no, I was talking about Afghanistan. It's sunny and it's sandy and we need to be prepared for battle. And, oh my goodness, I dressed wrong. I dressed very wrong. I'm not prepared for the reality I'm about to step into. And you look ridiculous. Here you are sunbathing in the barracks. And we're all like, what are you doing? You need bulletproof vests. You need to be prepared. This is a battle. And what you're going to see, and it's going to be amazing for the next two months we're together, when you see the battle between God and the foreign gods of Egypt, 
everything God does is to show that there's a spiritual battle at work for the people. And he's trying to show them they are in a mighty spiritual battle that he is trying to show he is supreme over all the gods and all the powers and all the demonic forces that are going on in Egypt. Same thing for us. We need to know we're in battle. We need to prepare for battle in this world we're living in. My story is I need to say, God, this is a battle. I need to prepare and bring my armor to bear in this battle. The second response, I think, is that we can know certainly, even in the meantime, that God is always working behind the scenes. Because God told Abraham, right after that you're going to be in bondage for 100 years, he also told him, but in the midst of the meantime, don't think I've abandoned you. Don't think I've given up on you. Don't think my plan is over. Don't think I've left the building. You can know certainly that I'm going to judge that nation afterwards, the 400 years, and you're going to come out, your people, your descendants are going to come out with great possessions. I'm going to teach you stuff in the meantime, and you're going to come out with valuable character and treasures and possession you couldn't have gotten any other way except through the meantime. Abraham, as for you, you're not going to see most of that. You're going to go to your fathers in peace, and you're going to be buried at a good old age. But in that, and I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen, the fourth generation, after 400 years, they will return here. I will make it happen. Now, if you're in 400 years, twice the, you know, twice the length of our nation, it's hard to see God at work in the midst of the meantime. Sometimes you've got to pull out a magnifying glass and go, where are you, God? And I want to show you, even in chapter 1, that's a very mean time of infanticide going on, how God was still at work. If you pull out your magnifying glass, you can see that the more they afflicted them, and they did, God was still at work. The more they multiplied. God used the mean times to multiply them, and they grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. Even as they subjugated them, they were in dread of them. These people are so powerful. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with vigor. Okay, let's make it even harder. Made their lives bitter and hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with big rigor. And then he says, go kill off the children. And we see God still, if you look real close, God begins to work through those midwives who refused to hear what the Pharaoh told them to do. The midwives, the Egyptian midwives, feared God, not the gods of Egypt, the God of the Bible. And they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Instead, they saved the male children alive including Moses. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, well, these Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women. They give birth very quickly. And they're already born before we get there. We weren't able to do it. Therefore, God dwelt or dealt well with the midwives, which is the old moral dilemma. You're hiding Nazis. You're hiding Jews. Nazis come to your door. Do you lie and, and tell people that you're not hiding them? And this is where the biblical idea of ethics is you weigh values. The value of life is more important. You protect life at all costs. Or, as my friend once said, he goes, here's an ethical principle. You always lied to the Nazis. <laughs> well, look how God honored them, even in their deception, that they chose to protect life over doing what the Pharaoh or the government in this case told them to do. Because the midwives, and here's God again at work, feared God... He provided households for them. He blessed them that they would not cast these children into the river. You now, it's interesting. One of the reasons we adopted Quinn, besides we were open to adoption, is because his birth mother was uh, not going to bring him to term. And so 
we said if she'd bring him to term that we would adopt him, and we did. And we've continued to keep a relationship with Jackie over the years. She had a, a circumstance of domestic violence. We went and rescued her out of that a few years later. She was pregnant again. We actually got her connected to our best friends from college because they had been infertile and they really wanted to have a child. We went through all the process, got it all worked out, and last minute she pulled out of the process, breaking our friend's heart and breaking our heart as well. And over Easter, we're having her stay in our house in the midst of all the commotion. This was two Easter's ago, and it was just exhausting. And then she sort of stepped out of our life for two years. And oh. And then my wife just continues to feel called to help her exit out of her situation. And so Beth just reignited or refound her this month and still trying to just help let her know about the love of God, let her know God cares for her. I think that's the third thing and final thing we see here is that I think our response is that we live in a broken world and God's asking us to engage in the story. We need to be those midwives who engage in our story. Engage in helping other people exit out of their sins, exit out of their bondage, exit out of their pain. We're called to engage in the story in the same way these midwives did. So here I think is our response. If God wants to meet us in the meantime, which is stuck between last time and this time, here's my challenge for you and I every time you encounter something bad this week. I want to say, I want to, you say this. Not, oh man, not again. That's what I always say. Instead, I want you to say, God, I'm going to trust you that you'll be faithful this time the same way you were faithful last time. Increase my faith and confidence in you. Something goes wrong at home. Something goes wrong at work. Bad medical report. Your instinct. God, I'm going to trust that you're going to be faithful this time the way you were faithful last time. And imagine what might happen this week and this month if you begin to train your brain to begin to look for God at work and say, God, I want to trust you. It's not here we go again. It's here we grow again. Will you stand with me? We're going to sing about his faithfulness. Let me say it one more time as you stand. I'm going to trust that you'll be faithful this time the way you were faithful last time. God, increase my faith and the faith of each person here, and our confidence in your ability to work. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.